Listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Bach Week, and today yes. we head to Boston. I'm very excited. Bach in Boston. I love it. That's good alliteration idea. today. Thank you. I always <laughs> like alliteration. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Joining us today, Dr. Jonathan Wessler. He's cantor at First Lutheran Church in Boston. Dr. Wessler, welcome to the Coffee Hour. Thanks. I am so looking forward to this conversation today as we talk about Bach and we dig into some history and what was important to Bach, what was happening at that time. Before we dig into that, tell us a little bit about who is Cantor Wessler and your background, what you've studied, quite the the biography. And I I know we can, you know, probably spend most of the time talking about that, but give us an idea of <laughs> yeah, let's um, where you studied and what what brings you to First Lutheran Church in Boston. Yeah. Lifelong Missouri Synod member from central Illinois. I went to college at the Oberlin Conservatory and at the University of Notre Dame and at the Eastman School of Music to study various combinations of organ and liturgy and sacred music and all that stuff. So I often say I live at the intersection of music and liturgy and theology, and that's that's kind of where my house is. So it's a lot of fun there. It's all all the best stuff, and it all intersects. And that's really what drew me to First Lutheran, is that this is a place where music is done to a very high standard, and liturgy is done to a very high standard, and of course that means theology is done to a very high standard. So so it's a really, really good place. So yeah, after college, I before I got to First Lutheran, I worked across the river from Boston in Cambridge, the new Cambridge, not the old Cambridge in, in England, but the new Cambridge in Massachusetts at St. Paul's Church in Harvard Square, which is a big Catholic church, big, you know, Romanesque building, boys choir, the whole nine yards. I was one of several musicians on staff there. So that was a good time. But then when this opened up, I said, yeah, this is really where I need to be. So, so I'm glad to be here. Now, you have a, a pretty extensive background with Bach, too. I mean, any church musician probably does to a certain extent, playing a lot and singing a lot of Bach. What has your experience been with Bach, Bach's music, the organ that you get to play, I hear, all of those things? Yeah, Bach is kind of the center of, of the organ repertoire. It's one of you know, the, the, the core of the organ repertoire because it's technically demanding and it's expressive and it's just really, really good music. And of course, if you're a Lutheran, there's, all, there's a whole other you know, layers and layers of meaning in there. Besides, we have at First Lutheran what they call Boston's Bach organ. It is in Boston, which is a town that is not at all devoid of really great fabulous organs in a variety of styles. It's the only one that is uncompromisingly the sort of organ that Bach would have had to play. It really is walking in, you look at it, and it is like taking an organ from 1700 in North Germany and just dropping it in the balcony in Boston in the 20th century and 21st century. So it is really wonderful. So I get to play that. It's It sounds fabulous. Every year, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, you mentioned alliteration a while ago, if I didn't mention the Boston Bach birthday, which is a yearly celebration of Bach and his music and his contributions to sacred music and to the Lutheran expression of faith on the Saturday nearest Bach's birthday. So every year about March 21, 22, 23, 18, 19, whatever that Saturday is, we have a day-long festival of Bach's music. 
with with lots of bees, obviously, Boston, Bach, birthday. So sometimes they throw in bash, you know, so it's a good time. That sounds like a lot of fun. I attended one in Tampa and it was just mm. fantastic. The Bach birthday bash there was fun too. So since your area of interest is liturgy and sacred music and worship, I'm a, a little n- nerding out today as well. That's my, fine. Sure. My, my graduate no studies. <laughs> my graduate studies were in similar areas in worship and <laughs> master thesis on the corporate nature of Christian worship. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. so let's let's talk about Bach and liturgy. Where what is this intersection of music, particularly the cantata and and worship? What was the the role of the cantata in the service? Yeah, the cantata. So the cantata, what we call the cantata, was actually that's not really a word that Bach would have known. It was a it was a big hunk of music in the middle of the service, basically right after the gospel and the creed, and right before the sermon. Sort of where we put our hymn of the day, which was actually in another place in in Bach's Leipzig. In that slot was this massive piece of music, 15, 20, 25 minutes long with instruments, choir, soloists, and just a variety of interesting stuff going on in the balcony. And it was really a, it was like a musical sermon. It was not a sermon. You, you, you have to be really careful. It's not a sermon because it's not a sermon, but it is like a sermon in that the manner of its delivery, its rhetorical impact, its ability and intent to move and exhort the hearer of the, of, of the music to greater faith, to greater devotion, to, you know, amend their sinful lives, right? To hear the gospel. So yeah, it was right in that slop there. And it really tied together Everything you heard in in the service, everything you heard, the lessons, the season, the day, all that, and the upcoming sermon, right, which would have, you know, pertained to the gospel for the day anyway, using, you know, rhetorical, rhetorical devices, biblical allusions, chorale tunes, chorale texts, newly composed texts that, that, that tied into all that. And so it really just tied everything together and the connections became self-evident to uh, to the people hearing. So it was really, it functioned as a musical proclamation of the gospel. Something really fabulous and beautiful. Every single week there was a brand new one that had never been heard or likely never been heard at that point. So, And so you never knew what you were going to get, but you were going to get something great. Was the cantata, that, that form of musical expression in the service, was that new in Bach's era? Where did it, where did it come from? Where did it originate from? <laughs> that is a dissertation's worth of, <laughs> worth of discussion there. The it is, yeah, the short, the short, short, <laughs> short version is it grew out of passion settings. It grew out of the Good Friday and the Palm Sunday passion settings, which were chanted by three people taking various roles. And it just over time got accreted larger and larger and larger. And particularly in the Holy Roman Empire, in north in the north, uh, north of the Alps, this became a thing that, that th- this music would get chorales attached to it and freely composed arias attached to it and and it would just it got bigger and bigger and bigger until it became a thing and it showed up basically it became a thing every week yeah that that is again that's a dissertation and it's really interesting <laughs> but yeah yeah it, it it was not completely new but it was not at all it was it was not hundreds and hundreds of years old at the same time so hmm. fascinating mm. We need another podcast on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> All right. We talked a little bit about uh, him singing yesterday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About the, the chorale becoming or being sung by the, the congregation as well, mm-hmm. being sung as a hymn. Let's talk about him singing. How was it? What was him singing like at that time? Wow. Yeah. Hymn singing, it was very different than it than we perceive hymns today. It was, first of all, it was unaccompanied. It would have been a cappella, depending on where and when you were in the 18th century. But well into the 18th century and even into the early 19th century in some places, the hymn would be sung a cappella. The organ would play an introduction, probably, you know, a three, four, even longer minute introduction, an extemporized chorale prelude on the chorale to give the congregation an opportunity to hear the melody and go, oh, I need this hymn. Let me go find that in my hymnal, which I brought from home, because there might not be hymn boards with hymn numbers up there, and there might not have been an announcement to tell you what hymn it was, so you kind of figured it out from the organ introduction. And then when the organ ended, you just started, and the organ was silent, and the hymn was just sung a cappella, and slowly oh my goodness slowly one we we have documents documenting this like every note of the chorale would have been on the order of two seconds long or maybe longer in in more somber chorale cheerful chorales were a good you know two seconds per note so very, very slowly. And this didn't strike them as odd. It was just what it was. It was what hymn singing was to them. Nobody thought it was super slow. Although we have, yeah, Charles Burney suggested that perhaps it ought to be faster. But again, that's another, that's another discussion. He was an interesting fellow. So when it finally became, we, they got to the point where they decided to accompany hymns on the organ. The organist, again, it's very, very slow. And the organist would have played little interludes between each phrase of the chorale, like a flourishy, roulade-type interlude between each phrase. And the purpose of these interludes was to point the congregation to the next note at the beginning of the next phrase. Because it was so slow, you had to figure out, oh, where's the next phrase begin? And there it is. Boom. And there we go. So it was very, very different. It was a very different experience. The hymnals, likewise, were different. They didn't have tunes or printed in them, or most of them didn't, just the text. So the congregation would have, again, needed that organ introduction to know what the tune sounded like. And then the interludes were there to kind of remind them where to go after that. So yeah, very, very different. And one it start accompanied him singing started to catch on in Leipzig. It wasn't after Bach until after Bach died. He didn't accompany, I think, a single hymn during his tenure in Leipzig, but he had in previous jobs in Arnstadt and Mulhausen. He was responsible for accompanying hymns, but not in Leipzig. So very, very different. Very interesting. And I have a question from our hymnal, but we should break first because sure. hopefully you have an interesting answer for this. It is Bach week. We're talking with Dr. Jonathan Wessler. Cantor at First Lutheran Church in Boston. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others. To live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world. To live a life that's 
uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. It is Bach Week, and we're talking with Dr. Jonathan Wessler Cantor at First Lutheran Church in Boston. Now, we were talking about him singing and how it is drastically different than what we are used to today. And I have a question from our hymnal, Lutheran mm-hmm. Service Book 656 and 657. This is like the ongoing mm. battle of A Mighty Fortress, which one is better? But Bach wrote the tune for or wrote the arrangement i should say for 657 oh yeah for one of them and so is is that difference in the the tunes the the iso isorhythmic is that what it is versus yeah, the rhythmic the, and isometric the rhythmic, yeah mm-hmm. is that kind of a, an example of of the change that was going on with him singing mm-hmm. back in the day Yes, in fact, so the, oh, which one does they call it? The rhythmic version. Bum, 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 ba, ba, da, da, da. That is the original version of the tune. And on all those Lutheran chorales, the rhythmic version is the original version. And the the isorhythmic or the isometric or the smoothened out version is what resulted over generations of congregations singing the hymns without accompaniment and in large groups in resonant churches and over time it just started to slow down and the notes got longer and the notes got longer and the tempos got slower until the note values were all just the same and very very slow so that's really where those came from yeah it's really interesting so we've talked about music very fitting for bach week and the the hymns and the the, the music of the time of bach in leipzig Talking about liturgy a little bit more, what about the the rest of the service? What about preaching? You mentioned earlier that mm-hmm. the, the cantata, the, the music of that time was not the sermon, but what, tell us more of what you know about the service, more of the service during that time. Yeah. In particular, the, ser- the sermon was different than, than we're used to. Preaching obviously happened and it was an important part of the Mass, but but it was really its own little thing in the middle of the service. You remember in, in Germany at that time, the entire divine service was about three hours from start to finish. But you might not have been there for the whole three hours. Basically, the service of the word going up through, you know, the cantata right before the sermon would have been about an hour. And the sermon itself, the the whole everything associated with the sermon would have been an hour. And then the, the service of the sacrament, everything after the sermon would have been about an hour as well. And the thing is, our our concepts of on time are different in the 21st century. Parishioners would have come late just to catch, you know, the sermon or, you know, left, you know, heard the bell ring at 10 to say, you know, 9 o'clock or whatever and didn't get there until 9.20 or 9.30 or weren't going to stay after the sermon because they weren't going to commune that week or something. So our, our concepts of this are very, very different. But really, you know, when I say the sermon, I'm not, it, it's really not the sermon. It's the sermon. And it was, it was a little, you know, an entire thing to itself called the pulpit service. And this pulpit service was this main, this middle hour of the service. And the exact contents varied, but it would have had a sermon, obviously. But it also would have begun with a hymn. Typically, the hymn was to God, the Holy Spirit, let us pray to, you know, invoke, invoke the Holy Spirit among, among the, those gathered for the sermon. 
to hear the sermon. The sermon would have probably begun with an extemporaneous prayer, which you sometimes see today now in, in our services. And the sermon would have gone for most of that hour, but it would also have included the day's prayers, so the general intercessions, and probably the announcements, because there weren't, you know, written, you know, announcements outside of, you know, posting something on the church door or something. And probably the the pastor would have thrown another hymn or two in there somewhere, just because you say, yeah, you know what, Christ, Christ is Arisen is a great hymn. We should sing it every day of the year. Let's sing that now. You know, Luther is known to say exactly that. And you can see him doing that in the pulpit, just saying, yeah, let's sing this now because this is a good hymn and we should sing it. So the sermon naturally, again, would have been most of this, most of this pulpit service. So very, very long by our standards of, you know, 15-ish minutes or so. But the people would have been engaged. It wouldn't have struck them as too long because they were used to it. And importantly, they were used to rhetoric. They were trained in rhetoric. They knew how to listen to an argument or to a persuasive, you know, thing being presented to them. So, yeah, it was it was a very different experience than our sermons today. <laughs> <laughs> How much of this came out of like Luther's Deutsche Messe? Is there are mm-hmm. there similarities or, or is that kind of where this this stemmed from 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 Luther's time to Bach's time? Uh, the uh, the Deutsche Messe is really mostly a a re- not a redacting so much as a or even a dumbing down. These are all stronger words than I should be using, but but in in the in the absence of a better word that I'm going to use at the point, right? So this is Luther taking the Latin Mass and translating it into the vernacular so that parishes without a Latin school, without educated people, you know, churches in the sticks, so to speak, could have a service that everybody could understand. And so, yeah, the sermon was in there somewhere, although Luther tends to advocate for the sermon being before the introit, but being like at the beginning of the service, which is kind of strange to our to our minds and really didn't catch on. So, so yeah, basically people said, yeah, okay, yeah, you can do that, I guess, if you want, but just just put it where it usually goes. Just leave it there. It's fine. So. All right. When we think about Bach, we think about all things musical, right? Mm-hmm. How much of the service in Bach's time was sung? How much was spoken? Yeah. So everything was sung. Again, I think excepting the pulpit service, excepting, you know, the sermon, you wouldn't sing the sermon naturally. You wouldn't sing the announcements. That would be just silly. But really everything else in the service from beginning to end was sung. It was a musical event. This includes the creed, which would have been sung to Luther's creedal, creedal tune, Wir glauben all einem Gott, right? Which we sing still today in Divine Service 5. And this would have included the readings as well. The readings, the epistle reading and the gospel reading would have been chanted. The Old Testament wasn't, wasn't you know, part of, part of the Mass at that time. So the readings would have been chanted. These readings, would, we, we have these tones. We, they're, they're readily available. We could still do this today. And occasionally you run into a church where on a certain very high feast day, um, say Reformation or something, uh, the, the priest will chant the gospel or something. But it's, but it's more or less fallen by the wayside in our churches. But it was de rigueur. Everything was sung. The readings were sung. So the whole service was a musical event from start to finish, really almost like a sacred concert in, in which the people had an important part in which, of course, the gospel was proclaimed, which is not something you see at a concert every day. But, but this, is, this was the, the experience you would have had when going to church, is that it's entirely sung. And you have to remember, there's no recordings back then. There's no, right? Your experience of music is whatever you can make happen in your own home with, you know, a lute or, you know, singing out of part books after dinner 
or whatever you get in the town square or in church or something like that, live music like that. And so this was, this was not, you know, seen as, you know, quote unquote, too Catholic or anything like that, or it wasn't seen as, you know, too, well, that's too, too highfalutin for us. We're simple folk. No, this is just the way it was. So, so these, these objections are strange to, to, would have been strange to their ears. This, this chanting had a practical purpose too in very large European, you know, cathedral sized buildings. And that's that speech carries better when it's chanted because it's projected. You use, you use your diaphragm to project when you're chanting. So it sounds louder. It carries further. And crucially, it's perceived as more important because it's slower. It's a little bit more drawn out. So re- really, really, you come to the point where you realize that chanting is, is not just, it's not just, you know, singing. It's heightened speech is the way you look at chanting. It's the medium is the message, so to speak, right? And so things that are chanted are those things that are of the utmost import. And we still have vestiges of this today. Like, for example, in many of our churches, the words of institution are chanted. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he's betrayed, took, right? That's chanted. And that stands out in a service where perhaps many other things are not chanted. That stands out because it's really, really, really important, Right. And it would have stood out in Bach's day as something that was really, really, really important because even though everything else was chanted, because that tone was the gospel tone, that tone that we have, that the the words of institution are chanted to, was set by Luther using the very same tone that Luther had used to set the gospel to music. So it connects the gospel in the first half of the service and the gospel in the second half of the service, as in the words of institution, they would have sounded the same to the people hearing them. Um, because they would have had the, it would have been the gospel tone used for the gospel and then the gospel tone used for the words of institution, which are also the gospel and the gospel that you're about to eat, which is really, really wonderful. So, so yeah, chanting is heightened speech. It, 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 we, we use it for things that are really, really important. Uh, you think of, you know, newsboys shilling papers on the corner in the early 20th century. Extra, extra, read all about it, right? He's not just saying, hey, everybody, look, read this, extra, extra. But he's singing, extra, extra, read all about it, right? You've seen this in, in, in the old movies or the comic strips or whatever. Things that are really important get chanted, even in, you know, mundane society and mundane life. That's the way it is because it's important and it also carries further. It's easier to, you know, get somebody to buy your newspaper if you're chanting extra, extra, read all about it. So, so likewise today, we ought to chant as well, I would say, especially the words of institutions, certainly, because it, again, chanting elevates the text. It's heightened speech. So we ought to chant those things that are really, really important. So about to answer my my next question. <laughs> sure, there you go. <laughs> I was also going to say your chanting is something that that is heightened speech for important things. So I think I need to make my life a musical now and just start singing everything that's really I, important. There you go. <laughs> I proposed to Chaplain Denzer that all the resolutions should at convention should be chanted. Oh, what yeah. a good idea. What Let's a good it. idea. Should there that be a resolution be... for that resolution at convention? Anyway, yeah, you'd have to submit one, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's complicated. So. Anyway, with the last minute or two we have left, how many of these these things that were normal, commonplace in in Bach's life, in the, mu- in the music and the life of the church, have we translated into what our liturgy looks like today? What are those familiar things that, that we can kind of trace back to those roots in Bach's day? Oh, really? In terms of the liturgy, it's basically all there. The introit, 
the Kyrie, the Gloria, which would have been done in Latin on high feasts. So Christmas and Easter, you would have heard the Gloria in Latin, and then you would have sung it in German besides, right? So you would have done it twice. Let's see, the Epistle, the Gospel, the Hymn of the Day, which we didn't touch on, but that's that's another can of worms, really. Basically, yeah, the Hymn of the Day was there. It was in the gradual slot, but it was there. The cantata uh, really is what basically, you know, as I'm going through the service in my head, is really the only thing that's not u- universally common amongst us anymore. And that's because it's complicated. It requires money. It requires a lot of rehearsal. It requires talented people to do it. It requires instruments and really nice buildings with good acoustics, you know, that support music and that sort of thing. And then we don't necessarily have those in in, in the same way that they did back then. But, you know, where you have that opportunity, you should take that opportunity, right? Because if we, if we can, you know, adorn the service with something beautiful that, that, that exegetes the text and, you know, is, is intrinsically core, corely, intrinsically Lutheran, that's the best way to describe it, intrinsically Lutheran, we should do that, right? That's, that's really, you know, the, the thing about the cantata, the cantata tradition is that no other Christian tradition has that kind of exegetical didactic music like we do so yeah that we we say that you know Bach is ours right he's Lutheran he's one of ours but he really is this whole tradition of the German cantata nobody else was doing anything like that except the Lutherans in Germany so um so yeah that ought to be you know a you know a banner of pride that we carry around saying yeah this is ours yeah this is our guy this is our tradition we should be doing this so but yeah really basically all of it is there the creed is there the service of the sacrament is there, the Sanctus, the Agnus, you know, the whole lot is there. Uh, it's just, yeah, the cantata has fallen by the wayside for, you know, r- obvious, sensible reasons, right? It's hard, it's complicated, it's difficult, but it's well worth doing when you have the ability to do it. So, Exegetical, didactic music. I love it. There you have Bach. Yeah, our, our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Wessler, Cantor at First Lutheran Church in Boston. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Dr. Wessler. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. And happy Bach Week, happy by the way. Week. Indeed, happy Bach Week. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.